primary way that people in the Middle East understood interpersonal relationships. It was a much broader concept then than it is now in the modern terms that we're more familiar with of, of contract or, or a treaty, even though those terms would be included in, in the sense of what it was in the Old Testament. To people in, in Bible times, a covenant extended to, to any type of relationship that involved responsibility. Some of the things that were included in that were things like marriage, parenthood, and even friendship. That's why Jesus implied that the entire law could be summed up as love. Love God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in the book of Matthew, the Pharisees had asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him with this, Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus made it clear that the the law really came down to one thing, and that was about love, loving God with all of our heart, loving our neighbors as ourself. And today we're going to continue in our our study in the book of Jeremiah. And one of the critical terms in Jeremiah's writing is the word covenant, the word we saw when we came in this morning. In chapter 11, the word covenant appears five times where the prophet reminded the people that the coming judgment was simply a consequence of their breaking their covenant with God. In chapters 31 through 34, the word covenant appears 15 times. And here it's contrasting the blessings of the new covenant with the curses of the old covenant. And I want to start reading Jeremiah 31, 23 through 30. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back into captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear them down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so will I watch over them to build and to plant declares the Lord. In those days, people were no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sins. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. God had promised that after their time of exile into Babylon, the nation of Judah would return to their home country. That was the promise that these people had that they could hold on to. The promise was also told that they would be taken captive into Judah, into Babylon. Jeremiah 31 was fulfilled in, in three waves. In other words, the people returned to Judah in three, three different groups of people from Babylon. Jeremiah, it tells us in, in history, says the first group under Zerubbabel went in 538 B.C., almost 70 years after the first exiles went into Babylon. So the first group leaving Babylon 
going back and fulfilling what the prophets had said, left Babylon under a man named Zerubbabel, and they went back to, uh, to Judah. And they went specifically back to Jerusalem to restore the temple. The second group of people returned under a man named Ezra, also known as Zip. Well, no, not really. But I had an uncle named Ezra, and they called him Zip, and I never understood why that was either. So anyway, Ezra, not my uncle, took the second group back to Jerusalem around 458 B.C. The third group that went back was led by Nehemiah. And they spearheaded, spearheaded the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. That took place about 445 B.C. So you see there was these three different groups. The first group went back to rebuild the temple. And then the next group went back under Ezra. And they had specific duties. And the third group went back to rebuild the wall. If you read history and you read the Bible and see how these different groups did this and the the attitudes that took place during this time, it is amazing reading. It is amazing how the people were so blessed to be released from Babylon and the way that they were released and the way that they were sent back and the way that they were restored and yet how they became content. And we'll look into that sometime later, not today. But it is an amazing, amazing story that you should read sometime. The key to the all the writings of Jeremiah is the fact that, yes, they were going to be carried away by the Babylonians. That was going to happen. Isaiah said it. Jeremiah said it. It was going to happen, and yes, it did. But there was a promise of someday returning to their home in Judah. It wasn't just about destruction. There was a promise of rebuilding. There was a promise of restoration. In Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33, has been called the, the book of consolation or the book of comfort. It's primarily because its, its message of, of future hope contrasts the, the dominant note of judgment throughout the previous chapters of the book. The first several chapters of the book of Jeremiah are all about destruction. They're all about the bad things that were going to happen. And yet we come to this part, portion and all of a sudden there is hope. And I would tell you today that in, in each of our lives, there are times when it feels like everything is about destruction. It's about how things are going down. But I can promise you that through the Word of God, I know that there is hope. And it's not in a person. It's not in a group of people. It's not in a church. Hope is in Christ. Our only hope is in Christ. It's here in the middle of this dismal situation that Jeremiah spoke words of comfort. Chapters 30 and 31 are remarkable for their emphasis on a better future when a re reunited Israel would be back in their own land and they would be living out a new relationship or a new covenant with God. This was the hope. Yes, things might not be good right now, but there is a better thing coming. There is a covenant that God has made with His people, and that is something that means a lot. It means everything. If it's a promise from God, you can count on it. This new relationship was, was established by a new covenant. Israel's future tended entirely on the everlasting love of God. If God did not love them, He would have just destroyed them, wiped them off the face of the earth, and started over. But He loved them. 
And because of that, he continually came back to them and gave them an opportunity to come back to him and to be restored. His love for them made it possible again, regardless how far far they had drifted away from him. Remember, these are people that, that God had given all of Canaan to. He had given them this land. It was the promised land. God had promised to him, and he took him in there, and everywhere that their foot set, he said that he would give them that land. And he did just that. And yet, once they got the land, and they knew that their God had given it to them, they started looking around at their neighbors and their neighbors' false gods and idols, and they said, we like their idols better than ours. We like their gods better than ours. And they began to serve the false and non-existent gods of their neighbors. And yet God made a way so that at some point they could be pure and have the relationship as it was intended for them to be. Like a father gathering his children, the Lord would gather his people. Like a shepherd watching over his regathered flock, the Lord would watch over his people. It says he would turn their mourning into joy. And bring them again into the land that he had promised them. Jeremiah 30 through 33 contains two sections. The first part is dealing with the restoration of Israel and Judah. The second deals with the faith and the assurance of God's future blessing of his people. Remember, at one time you had the nation, as the uh, the people of God went into Canaan, that nation became known as Israel. After the death of Solomon, that single nation split into two separate nations. There was Israel and there was Judah. Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. Many, many years later, the Babylonians captured the Assyrians, so they in turn owned Israel now. Then the Babylonians took Judah and took them into captivity. So when God said, you're going to go back to your own country, it was going, they were going to go back as a reunited Israel. They would once again be one people. They would once again be God's people as one people in the land of Israel. Beginning in Jeremiah 31.23, the Lord declared to Jeremiah that one day I will free my people and I will lead them back to their hometown. Verse 26, in that same chapter, it, it indicates that this came to Jeremiah in a dream because he says, at this... I awoke and looked around, and my sleep had been pleasant to me. Now, it wasn't uncommon in that time for God to speak to people through dreams. Still not. There's a lot of people that think their dreams were from God, and we have to be careful about that because sometimes it was just the pepperoni on the pizza. So you have to be very cautious of that. (coughs) When God restored His people, it says that the returnees would ask him to bless Jerusalem and the sacred hill on which his temple stood. In that day of restoration, city dwellers, it says city dwellers, farmers, and shepherds would all live together in peace and joy. And another aspect, and this is an important thing, was that regardless of their occupation, even those that felt tired and those that felt worn out would find renewed energy and strength. And that's important. These are people that have been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And now they've returned home. 
And the promise is, I will restore your land. I will restore your people. I will restore your flocks. And not just that, I will restore your strength. In the past, it says that God had allowed the nation to be uprooted and torn down. They knew that. They knew that the only reason the Babylonians were able to come come in and conquer their country was that God allowed it to happen. But he's saying now, in the future, I'm going to plant and I'm going to rebuild what has been torn down. There was a proverb, and this is interesting. There was a proverb during the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and both Jeremiah and Ezekiel used this proverb. It said that, If the parents ate sour grapes, it would cause the children to grind their teeth out of the bitter taste. Now, that doesn't make much sense to us. And what it was, it was saying, the people use this proverb to claim that their generation had been judged because of the sins of the previous generations. So it's saying that if the parents took sour grapes and, and it, they were so sour, they were so sour that it made their kids' teeth grind. And they used it to say that the reason all this is coming on us is from the sin of our forefathers. And all the application of this proverb probably is based on a misinterpretation of what God said in the law of Moses concerning the the sins of the fathers carrying to the third and fourth generation. And that's a whole other Bible study. But I will tell you that it's mostly interpreted wrong. If you read it, it really should have been. And it's although it's interpreted a number of different ways, I believe that it really means that the actions of one person could adversely affect several generations of family members. I don't think it necessarily means that if... If a person goes out and commits a sin, that his great-grandson and great-great-grandson are going to be punished because of that sin. Hang on. It explains itself here in a minute. A practical way to look at this. Look at the culture of that day. In the ancient Middle East, it was typical for intergenerational families to live in the same household. It was very typical to have great-grandpa, grandpa, dad, the kids, and sometimes people that weren't even related, aunts and uncles and even whoever in the house. So you had several generations of people living in a household. And in that situation, the consequences of one person's behavior could affect several generations of people. So the people took on this, this proverb that if the parents ate sour grapes, that the children would feel the sourness and it would make them grind their teeth. And it was a misinterpretation. I believe it would be wrong to conclude that God's judgment was not due to personal sin. Although the effects of sin could affect people in other generations. In other words, God doesn't punish someone else for your sin. It's not the way God works. In verse 30, there's a clarification of this. 
He said, instead, everyone will die for his own sin, and whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on it. See how it all comes back into play? Here they were saying, well, if the parents eat sour grapes, then the kids are going to grind their teeth. But he's saying, instead, everyone is punished for their own sins. And whoever eats sour grapes, it'll be their own teeth that are set on the edge. So a person is judged for their own misdeeds, not for those of someone else. And there are people that will tell you differently than that. Honestly, as much as I've looked into this and as much as I've read about it, and as much as you read through the Word of God and see God judges us for what we do. Our relationship with God is one of personal relationship. God rewards us for what we do. No one else can find salvation for you. And if that's the case that no one else can gain salvation for you, I assure you that God's not going to punish you because of somebody else's sin. Amen. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And this passage of Scripture right here represents the very apex of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. It has now been over a century since the Assyrians had defeated and removed the people from the residents of Israel. And even though Israel no longer existed, they would be included in this promise along with Judah. Because remember, when they came back from Babylon, they would be restored as a reunited nation. So this new covenant was going to be for all of God's people. The problem with the old covenant that God made with Moses, remember, the old covenant is the law that God gave Moses after he led them out of captivity, once again, in Egypt. That's the old covenant. But the problem with that, that, that God gave Moses at Mount Sinai, was that they continually broke it. Some modern theologians in their zeal to stress the importance of the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated have tried to disparage the old covenant. However, a careful reading of the scripture indicates there was nothing wrong with the old covenant that God had given Israel through Moses. There was nothing wrong with that covenant. But it was never God's intent that the law of Moses be used as a means to obtain salvation. It was a law. Instead, forgiveness of sins has always been a gracious gift from God to those who would humble themselves before Him in faith. That's always been God's way of salvation. It was back then, and it still is today. The law did not save anyone. The law was simply God's way of pointing out a pathway that people should walk. 
It was a list of rules. Now, with that said, many of the basics of the law of Moses also apply to us today. Romans 7 and 7, look what Paul wrote. This is in the New Testament. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. So the law serves a purpose. The law served a purpose to point out what was right and what was wrong. Paul said, I wouldn't know what coveting was if the law said, didn't say, do not covet. I wouldn't have known that it was wrong. In Galatians 3 and 19, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise had come. Who was that? It was Jesus. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. And then skip down to verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. All the law was was a guidebook. It was a series of rules that would help people to know how to live their life. And a lot of those things are still in use today. The basic tenets of the law are still practical today, as practical as they were in the day of Moses. In fact, many of the laws that are on the books of our country are based on the principles set forth in the, the law of Moses. I don't know how much longer they will be, but the Ten Commandments are often posted in a courtroom. Why? Because that's the basics of what many laws are based on. So we see that the problem with the covenant given at Mount Sinai was not in God's provision, but in the people's response. There was nothing wrong with the law. There was something wrong with the people. One example of that was in the day of Jeremiah, you had this good king named Josiah. Remember Josiah? He was a good king. When he came in, he was a godly man, and he, he went through and took out all the false idols in the country. He had them destroyed. He turned the people's hearts back toward God. He reinstated the law of Moses and led the people towards living for God. But it wasn't very long after Josiah died, the people went right back to worshiping idols and serving false gods. Why? Their hearts were unchanged. Regardless of what Josiah did, their hearts remained the same. Only God could change the heart and minds of people. So there was a new covenant needed. I have a friend that used to say, a, man's, a man who's changed against his will is of the same opinion still. And that's pretty much what happened with Josiah. He changed the people and made them do what was right, but it wasn't in their heart. They were still of the same opinion to the point that when he died, they went right back to what they were doing before. The new covenant would have to address the problem inherent in the old one and compensate for the people's inability to perform up to God's standard. Now, how is that going to be done? The Lord described the essential difference between the new and the old covenant by saying that the new one would be internal and the old one was external. The new covenant re represented a relationship 
while the old one was more of a legal document. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone, but the new one would be written on people's hearts. And once God's law could be implanted within people's hearts, then their relationship with God could be permanent because it was in here. And there are a lot of people today that are still trying to make salvation about what's out here without changing what's in here. It didn't work in the Old Testament. It didn't last in the Old Testament. And I will tell you, it doesn't work today. Because if it's not in your heart, it really doesn't matter what's on the outside. The Lord showed Jeremiah a time when all of his people would directly know him. And when that time would finally arrive, there really wouldn't be a need for people like Jeremiah. Why? Because the people, the the Scripture says that the people would no longer need someone to exhort them to know the Lord because they would know Him for themselves. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know Me. And today, that's the difference in, in our covenant and the covenant of the Old Testament is we have a personal relationship with God. We don't have to go to somebody else to speak on our behalf to God. God no longer has to speak through someone else to us, although He still does often. He can speak directly to our hearts. And a critical aspect of this new covenant and this new relationship between God and His people hinged on forgiveness of sin. You see, before this, there was, under this new covenant that we have today, there is forgiveness of sin. Under the old covenant, there was no forgiveness of sin. The only thing the people could hope for was that every year they took a sacrifice into the temple and the priest offered this sacrifice up and it pushed their sins ahead to the next year. And when the next year came around, if they didn't go offer another sacrifice, all those sins came right to them. Why? Because they were still there. They weren't forgiven. They were just put off for another year. And you had to continually go back and offer another sacrifice. But the, when Jesus Christ came to this earth and offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin, all of a sudden now there was forgiveness. Because God's law... Even though he wanted to write it on the hearts of men, God's law could not be written on hearts that were stained by sin. People's hearts required a cleansing. And that cleansing was as a result, it was done as a result of the grace of God. And through the grace of God, our hearts are cleansed, and then that law is placed in our heart so that we don't sin against it. And it says that once He forgave them of their sins, He will remember their sins no more. See, that's the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They couldn't say that under the law. They couldn't say that under the, 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 the setup to where they had to go offer a sacrifice in the temple. God still remembered all their sins. 
He just put them in the back of the book and put them on the calendar for next year. And when that time came up, the little beeper reminder went off and said, uh, there's your sins again. What are you going to do? The New Covenant differed primarily in the fact that it was a personal thing between God and man. Men no longer had to go to a priest. The prophets weren't necessary because God would speak directly to individuals. And today, God speaks directly to you and me. It doesn't have to be through someone else. And again, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God does not speak to us through other people. But He doesn't have to. He can and does speak to us individually today. We have the opportunity today for something that the people under the Old Covenant never had, and that was a personal relationship with Christ. Think about this. When the people left out of Egypt and they saw all of these things that God did, they never knew God for themselves. God only spoke to this certain few people And the people just had to take for granted that that was the case and follow. There was nothing in their heart. There was nothing in in them. There was no proof from God other than the miracles that were performed that there was really a relationship because there wasn't. It was about rules and regulations. And as I said earlier, and I'll say it again because I really want to stress this, When the Old Covenant went away and the New Covenant came into being, the rules and regulations were not the way to salvation. Why? Because they never were. The law was not intended as a way to salvation. It was intended as a a guideline to show us how we should live our life. But it did not provide salvation. Salvation is only provided through grace under the New Covenant. So we have this opportunity to have a personal relationship with God. And, and many would people would say, well, I do. And maybe they do. But I will tell you that there are an awful lot of people today that are doing God's work without God's direction. Oh, well, that's impossible. Odd as it might seem, many people are good at practicing the Christian life without ever having met Christ for themselves. They know how to do Christian things. But they're not really Christ-like. They know of Christ, but they don't know Christ. God wants us to have a relationship with Him. He doesn't want us to just know of Him. He doesn't want us just to believe that He exists. He wants us to have a relationship. And that, it requires more than just belief in someone to have a relationship. Good point. 
Good point. Dr. Rutland, the president of Southeastern University, I heard him speak a few weeks ago. And when he began his ministry, he went through some amazing things. And the life that he was living as a pastor was incredible. And I don't mean incredibly good. It was incredibly bad. And he was speaking to several thousand college kids with this and talking about having an actual relationship with God. And he said when he went to seminary that he had professors at seminary that actually did not believe in God. At a seminary. And he lived his life pastoring a church as an alcoholic and just a life that was just completely a lie. Until one day, he actually developed a relationship with God. What was the difference? He was living as a Christian, but he wasn't a Christian. And there are a lot of people today that know how to do the Christian thing without really being a Christian. Well... Exactly. That's exactly right. And if we know that's the case, because there's two, two examples there, that men of pastoring churches and leading people, if they can do it, don't you think there's people sitting in the pews that do it? God wants us to become sons and heirs of his and we don't become sons and heirs without there being some kind of a relationship there look at galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 what i am saying is that as long as the heir is a child he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set forth by his father so also when we are children, when we were slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights as sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts and the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. We have become sons of God through Jesus Christ. Not through our own righteousness, but through righteousness that is only brought to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And because we have become sons, we have also become an heir. And it requires a relationship. Remember, the law addressed the outside. The new, the new covenant that was set in place by Jesus Christ addresses the inside. And when that happens, the outside will take care of itself. I assure you. 
although I'm very young, I've been around church for a long time. And I've seen so many people through the years that if you were just going by looks, you would sit and say, that has to be one of the most godly people in the world. Just look at them. And yet, if you saw how they lived their life, I don't mean going out and doing gross sins and robbing banks and killing people. I'm not talking about that. Talking about every opportunity they had, they tore the pastor up. They talked about everybody in church. They were a gossip, backbiting. And yet they sure looked the part. You know what the difference is? They didn't have anything in here. It was all an external facade. But I will tell you this, when you have a relationship with God and when you have the Spirit of God in your life, when you really have salvation and you have found Christ for yourself, those things won't happen. Some people are startled to think that that God chooses to have a relationship with human beings because instead they picture God as, as someone who wants to just boss folks around. I can make you do whatever I want because I'm God. And when they do wrong, He's just waiting for them so He can smack them in the back of the head for doing wrong. And this week's passage makes it very clear. Jeremiah 31 and 34 says, They will all know me from the least to the greatest. That means everyone can have a personal relationship. It doesn't mean that everyone does. It means that everyone can. If you ask most people today, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, yeah. But if you ask them to explain why, you would get, if you asked 10 people, you'd get 15 different answers. Because there's all kinds of opinions of what being a Christian is, but there's really only one correct answer. And that's when we have found a relationship with God. When we have had salvation really applied to our heart, when the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven our sins and the Spirit of God has come to live in us, that's when we can really say we're a Christian. Believing in Jesus doesn't really get it. Believing that He lived doesn't really get it. Believing that He died doesn't get it. You see, because I believe that Abraham Lincoln lived, and I believe that he died, but I don't have a relationship with Abraham Lincoln. God wants us all to know Him. So what's involved in knowing God and having a relationship with Him? Actually, it's not any different than most other relationships. One of the first things is 
accurate knowledge of the other person. When I first wrote this, I just put knowledge of the other person. But I think it's important to say accurate knowledge of the other person because if you don't know what's really true about that person, you don't really have a relationship with them. I believe that we have to have accurate knowledge about God and how He deals with people. And that helps us to know who He is. For example, the, the people of Judah saw God as this mean-spirited accountant that, that made children pay for the sins of their parents. Remember the grapes thing? That's how the people of Judah pictured God. That He was this, this bean counter guy that stood up there with a little chart and He made the, the children pay for the sins of their parents. And that wasn't the case. That sour grapes attitude. Because of that, I believe that it eroded the relationship and it placed in that relationship suspicion and distrust. And I will tell you this, you cannot have a relationship with suspicion and distrust. And that brings us to the second thing, and that's trust. Mistaken ideas like the previous one make it difficult for people to trust God. There are people that... They will not have a relationship with God because they've been told so many ridiculous things over the years that you just don't know what to believe. And the ridiculous things they've been told didn't come out of the Bible. And when people hear those type of things, especially from somebody who's supposed to represent God, it makes, them, it, makes it very hard for them to trust God. Trust requires that we believe that the other person in the relationship has our best interest at heart. If we don't really believe that God has our best interest at heart, we won't trust Him. When, it came, when the people came to the, to the Red Sea and it was time to cross over, even though Moses raised that rod and the seas parted, Would you have walked out there? The people had to believe that God had their best interest in mind because there was these walls of water on both sides and they walk by and they see fish in there and they stick their finger in there. Wow. I'm going back. But no, they believed that God had their best interest in, in mind and they were able to trust that they could walk all the way across. When, when the disciples were out on a boat and Jesus came walking to them on the sea and they looked out there and they said, who is that? Well, who else would you expect to be walking on the sea? And they finally realized it was Jesus and Jesus spoke to Peter and said, why don't you walk out here and join me? I don't know about that. If Peter didn't believe that Jesus had his best interest in mind, would he have ever stepped off that boat? So it takes believing that the other person in the relationship has our best interest at heart in order to have trust. If you believe that the only thing God is doing is waiting around to squash you like a bug or that he enjoys watching you squirm, it will be difficult, if not impossible, 
to trust God in everyday life regarding the salvation of your soul or that what He is doing is best for you. So it takes trust. The third thing is communication. It's simple. It's difficult, if not impossible, to have a relationship with someone you won't talk to. You go, well, that's, that's just an overstatement of the obvious. And yet, how many people don't ever talk to God and they think they have a relationship with Him? When we really trust God, we feel free to talk to Him. Trusting God allows us to venture out Offer prayers that express our, our hidden doubts. Those times when we don't understand. And, and because we trust Him, we feel like we can go to Him and just tell Him how we really feel. We can tell Him those, those negative feelings that are in our, in our heart. And maybe the inappropriate desires that have popped up in front of us. And this communication, this prayer... It allows us to receive God's forgiveness and find help from Him. Why? Because we have this back and forth communication. We hear His voice and we understand and trust that He hears ours. Fourth part of a relationship, I believe, is hope. Believe it or not, God understands our need for assurance about the future. You say, are you sure? Yeah. God does understand that we are human beings and we need a reassurance about the future. That's why there's scriptures like Jeremiah 29 and 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's why He can offer us comfort in the middle of a raging storm. Because He knows that we need reassurance. That we can't see past right here. And if we trust Him enough, we know that He sees after the storm. Amen. Sometimes it's like kind of like when you go to the movies. And before the main feature starts, you see all the things that are coming. The coming attractions. And there are times that I believe God will offer us the coming attractions. Just as He did with Judah. That's kind of what, what Jeremiah presented to them. It was they sat down and the little screen comes up and the, go out to them, get you some popcorn and candy and cold drink, and then coming attractions. Here's what's going to happen. The Babylonians are going to take you into exile. Oh, that's not good. I don't like that one. Oh, well, here's the next one. You're going to come back and He's going to give you your whole country back and restore you better than ever and give you a relationship with Him. Well, I think I'll go see that one. Hope. There is hope. In order to have a relationship, there has to be some hope. And God sets before us a place of never-ceasing fellowship with Him in an eternity that was without sorrow. And that is what our hope is. 
Paul, I believe, said that if, if all I ever had to hope for was what's in this life, I'd be of all men most miserable. But there's hope. There's hope beyond what we see today. There's hope beyond what we see for next week. And if the week after that doesn't get any better, there's hope for something even down the road. And if we die and nothing has changed and it still hasn't gotten any better, there is hope that there is a place. Just like Abraham said, that in in spite of all the things, when he got to Canaan, he never owned land, he never had a permanent home, but he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. So I ask you today, do you know Him? If you don't, then, then why not start today? Why not start that relationship with God today? If you say, well, I'm not sure, then you probably don't, so why not make sure today? And if you said, oh, yeah, yeah, me and God, we're, we're like this. then I will offer this. There's always more. Regardless where you are in your walk with Him, I assure you that you have only scratched the surface of all that He has for us when we can trust Him completely. So even though y'all are like this, there's still more. When we trust Him completely and enter into that covenant of a heart-to-heart relationship with Him. We will find peace. We will find joy. We will find trust and we will find hope like we have never known before. God bless you.